netcasting from Chicago, Los Angeles, and Sydney. You're listening to this week's FX Podcast from FXGuide.com. Thanks for joining us for this FX Podcast. The FX Podcast is where we talk one-on-one with top visual effects artists doing cutting-edge work. We dig deep into the technical side, and I'm just going to stop the canned intro because that's exactly what we're going to do today. We're going to speak with Paul DeBevic from ICT and now from Google VR, and Michael talked to him about that at the beginning of the podcast, and then we're going to dive really deeply into a SIGGRAPH. SIGGRAPH's coming up soon, and looking forward to that as the... Uh, FX Guide gang will be all together again in good old Anaheim, checking out the show. So I'm um, looking forward to that. And this paper is uh, continuing in the series of papers that Paul's been involved with uh, over the years with the light stage. And Mike and Paul are going to, Mike Seymour, who does the interview for us with uh, Paul DeBevic, are going to really dig deep into uh, some areas that might surprise you. Uh, I know when in the FX PhD courses, Mike had gotten a hold of some LED lights years ago just for traveling when, you know, we're traveling with Kina flows over the years and in filming interviews and stuff like that. And, you know, it's a lot to travel with, especially from Australia. So we ended up with duplicate equipment in different cities and expensive and, you know, good, good quality stuff, great stuff. But, you know, when LED lighting came around, we really dove into it pretty quickly. Um, bought some cheap ones at NAB and, uh, just Mike was not happy, uh, when he started evaluating them against studio lighting um, with the color rendition and started doing some research and figuring stuff out and, you know, found out that, you know, as you'll hear in the podcast, LED production is not really a, a science that's controlled. It's, uh, you know, basically starting with single color bulbs a lot of times and filtering them and um, putting caps over them to change the, the wavelengths. And it, it, it's a very messy problem when you start um, evaluating LED lighting um, because they may produce a color that to your eye, to your eye looks good and as as they'll talk about you know white looks white and in the camera and you go oh, that's great but then you put skin tone in and it, it looks different so it's because of the wavelengths and they'll talk at length about that and you will find out everything you've ever wanted to know about the frequencies and uh, wavelengths of of light that are produced by such things and of course the light stage you know, revolves around LED lighting. So obviously Paul has a immense knowledge about the lighting characteristics of LEDs and and, and the problems. And so the, the paper that they're going to talk about is really taking the light stage to a whole other level with, you know, more color options and more realistic color lighting, both on the capture side and also on the, um, if you put somebody in the light stage, you can get a better quality result out of the light stage. So... You're going to want to check this out, and uh, let's jump into it right now with uh, Mike Seymour speaking with Paul DeBevic. And so Paul joins me now from Los Angeles. How are you, Paul? Uh, Mike, I'm very well. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. So I'm very keen to talk about this work that you guys are publishing at SIGGRAPH, not least of which because I've had an interest in uh, the validity or otherwise of uh, LED lighting for some time now. But I guess just before we start, I think people would really like to uh, just hear, you're now officially, are you at Google? Uh, yes, I am working with Google's uh, virtual reality team, and we are out of the uh, Google Venice office. But now, what does this mean for ICT um, at USC? Because obviously, that's got a particularly strong place in the community, and everyone's uh, you know very uh, interested in what happens with the research that's been coming out of there for the, gosh now years. 
Uh, absolutely. Well, there continues to be a, uh, a strong graphics laboratory and presence at USC ICT. There's also uh, one of the world's best light stages in operation there. And uh, I am uh, continuing to work with USC ICT on some of their uh, continuing light stage uh, projects and uh, supervising a few graduate students as a uh, adjunct research professor. Right. So in other words, you haven't severed your ties. And, and in fact, I imagine the work that we're about to talk about was all done with USC's uh, ICT light stage. Uh, absolutely. It's done using light stage X, uh, the third generation, the third generation of lights that we've put on it. And when we designed the third generation of light source, we really thought that we should try to do more than just red and green and blue uh, LEDs. And we put a couple more colors on there. And uh, then there was this research project sitting in front of us to figure out how to use them effectively to do better lighting reproduction than anyone had ever done, uh, hopefully. Well, we're going to get to that in a second. Let's just discuss a couple of the basics right out of the gate um, about lights in general. So I guess the big thing is for those that have used lights but not really sort of paid enormous amounts of attention to the spectrum of lights, we tended to think of the light stage as reproducing in all its forms up until now, like, you know, what we got from an HDR that could be reproduced in a light stage because all the lights would turn off and on to, to match the HDR. And then also there was an entire other body of work, if you like, that kind of built from that in terms of being able to sort of photograph and capture information about someone's face inside a light stage. And, and what we're about to talk about doesn't invalidate that. It's sort of like an improvement on it. Is that right? Uh, hopefully, yes, it's a significant improvement. And one thing that um, can get a, a bit confusing is there's actually a variety of different things you can do with a light stage. It's just a, a sphere of computer-controlled LEDs, and some of them have different colors, and some of them have different polarizing filters in front of different LEDs. And the thing that it's used in a commercial sense most commonly for is for uh, facial scanning, taking um, photogrammetry data sets of a face from different directions from the cameras and then different polarizations and directions of the lights to get the high detailed uh, surface orientations and displacement maps and get a very high resolution model of the face. And then sometimes we turn on one light at a time and we get reflectance fields and it allows you to relight a still or even um, a performance of somebody uh, in post-production by taking, you know, combinations of all of these different lighting passes that we have on them. Uh, but actually, the very original idea of a light stage was to light somebody with image-based lighting, with an HDRI map that you took as a HDR image of a mirrored sphere or assembled from fish eyes from somewhere. And you just want to see what would that person, that real living person that you have access to, look like if they were lit by that environment in a way that you could composite them in and have them look the same way that they would if they were actually there. So in other words, if I was, I think one of the examples we used to use back in the day was uh, you took an HDR in a cathedral and there was a bright light up in the sort of top sort of point of the cathedral. And of course, that meant that part of the stage, the, the spherical ball that I'm sitting in is lit up very brightly and that kind of mirrored where that would have been uh, once it had been orientated, uh, you know, and so I would get effectively a much more accurate lighting on me sitting in it than I would anyways be able to do on a soundstage where I'd be just doing sort of super approximations of what had happened on the day. 
Absolutely. So like one of our, our favorite light probe images uh, I shot in the late 1990s in Grace Cathedral, and it had kind of bluish stained glass windows from above, and it had this bright yellow altar coming from the side. And when we displayed that image on Light Stage 3, which we actually uh, published a paper about at SIGGRAPH 2002, that had 156 um, uh, color kinetics red, green, blue LED lights all around you. And we would kind of downsample or down-res that spherical HDRI map into the resolution of the light sources. And the lights above you would get driven by the, you know, kind of slightly bluish bright light coming from the stained glass windows. And then the lights off to the side of you would get driven with the bright yellow light coming from the altar. And the rest of the lights would be kind of these, you know, muddy dimmer, you know, yellows and purples that were from, you know, the wood and the marble of the cathedral. And when you stand in it, uh, you're basically being lit by a reproduction of the illumination uh, of the uh, of the cathedral with the same colors of light coming from the same directions. Okay, now if we just leave that for one second in people's minds and say we're going to come back to that idea of in one second and just imagine we're stepping outside of the light stage room and into a normal sound stage and I put up some lights an important thing for people to understand, I think, is that what we understand as the color of my skin if, or the color of your skin if I'm filming you is a combination of a number of things, isn't it? Obviously, the color of your skin matters a lot. The color temperature of the light is one thing that we're quite used to. Is it, you know, like a, a fluoro light? Is it, uh, in other words, daylight? Or is it like a tungsten light, like a, an ARRI, and it's a, hence a sort of a different color temperature? And that's something that most people are familiar with from stills photography. But in, if we go a little bit further, in fact, like if I was to have an LED light up there, not all LED lights that claim to be daylight have the same kind of spectral properties. Again, this is just like a normal soundstage, no clever anything. And similarly, the actual camera itself has a digital sensor and that's going to pick up colors a bit differently. So just quickly, just explain that idea that the spectrum of what I say, oh, that's daylight, I've set the color balance to daylight, doesn't necessarily mean that that white light is the same for every camera or every same situation. Absolutely. So lighting isn't an incredibly complicated thing, but it's slightly complicated. And um, sometimes even some of the terms that we use to talk about it are a little bit too simple compared to what's actually going on to, to be as helpful as they should be. So, um, you know, color temperature, for example, uh, is like a single number that tries to say, you know, if it's higher, it's like a daylight spectrum. If it's lower, it's like a tungsten spectrum. If it's lower, it's like a really dim, barely on tungsten uh, spectrum. Um, but uh, another way that you could uh, try to specify, you know, like what's the the spectrum of the light is, well, what color is that light source? Like fluorescent light is a little greenish. So you could say, well, it's got a red value here and a green value that's a little higher and then a blue value that's just a little lower than that. But what actually matters is how much energy is that light putting out uh, across all of the different wavelengths of the visible spectrum. And light, um, any particular photon can have a, a wavelength, you know, roughly from 400 to 700 nanometers from the blue end to the red end, um, all the different colors of the rainbow. And every different type of illuminant will have, will feature and output a different mix of all of the different colors of the rainbow. And, you know, you really have to kind of think about it in, you know, at least down to like 
10 nanometer bins to get really accurate results. And one thing that we discovered is that just trying to record, you know, what the color and intensity of a light is by taking a picture of it with the camera, and then the pixels just give you a reading of, you know, how much red light there is, how much green light there is, and how much blue light there is, isn't enough to know the spectrum of the light. Uh, and particularly, it's not, not enough to know how it's going to make stuff look that it's lighting up. In particular, for example, uh, human skin. There's uh, this effect of um, metamerism, which is that because the human visual system only has three types of cones, and each cone, one of them kind of groups a bunch of colors of the rainbow that are toward the long wavelengths, and one does a group around the middle wavelengths, and one does a group around the short wavelengths, uh, you can actually have different um, graphs of how much power there is across the rainbow that'll look exactly the same to the human eye, but it's actually putting out different amounts of light at different parts of the rainbow. And likewise, our cameras that we are recording the light with are kind of modeled after the human eye, and they don't sense light exactly the same way or exactly the same spectral areas, but it's kind of similar. And you can have that same effect with a camera. You can take a picture of two different light sources, it will look exactly the same RGB color in the image, but they actually have different amounts of power at all of those wavelengths if you look all the way from 400 to 700 nanometers. And because of that, they can actually light objects and surfaces differently. And if all you know is what color it looked to a camera or how it looked to your eye, or even worse, all you know is its color temperature, it's not going to tell you enough about how it's actually going to perform out there in the real world. Okay, so if we want to get somebody to sit in a light stage and be lit to match a background plate, then we need to do a few things, don't we? We need to record what the background plate lighting was and then we have to be able to reproduce it in your, in your light stage. And up until now, I think a lot of the thought about the HDRs was capturing dynamic range in terms of darks and lights. Obviously, you know, you'd favor one end or the other with your exposure on the camera and you wouldn't get... You know, if you're opening up for the darks, you wouldn't, everything on the whites would be clipped. And the great thing about HDRs is it captured that. But that was all the thing that we were thinking about, you know, generally in terms of light and dark and f-stops. And what we're now talking about is keep all that, but just now get a bit more clever, I guess, in getting the color right, not just uh, kind of the range of illumination right. So, so start me with what this project is trying to do in those steps of both capturing on location the the background, I guess, illumination that we're going to match to? And then how do you reproduce it in a new light stage? Absolutely. Well, let me describe the, the, the previous process that we had with, with light stage three. This is the SIGGRAPH 2002 paper because it was very straightforward. Uh, and, um, and we realized at the time it wasn't exactly the right thing to do, but you know, we're, we're finally getting something that we're very quite satisfied with at this point. And so... Uh, when you shoot an HDRI map, you usually take it with a color camera. You definitely bracket your exposures so you cover the whole range of illumination. You don't want to clip any light sources or else you could be completely off in terms of your record of what that light is like. Um, and that gives you a red-green-blue image of that incident illumination. Now, if you happen to have red-green-blue LED light sources all around, it's pretty trivial to just take the, the red-green-blue pixels from the image from the same direction then drive the lights with those. Um, it kind of basically gets the answer right, but as it turns out, 
just combining red, green, and blue LEDs um, gives you sort of a weird color spectrum. And it actually makes people, in particular human skin, look pretty funny. It's sort of saturated, isn't it? It actually oversaturates. Uh, it actually oversaturates the appearance. This is one of the demonstrations that we do in our light stage. Is that if we try to create a color white by mixing just red, green, and blue LEDs, and a person's in there, their white shirt might look totally like it's a white shirt lit by white light. And if they're holding a you know a notebook and it's got white pieces of paper in it, it looks like it's you know perfectly color balanced to white, and that should be great. But then you look at their skin. And then the color saturation has increased. People look a little extra magenta um, in, in a strange way. And it's not even a particularly attractive look. No. And the reason, you've, you've actually been in this yourself, I think. We put you in every possible form of unattractive lighting uh, at some point during, uh, uh, during the work. But um, the, um, and you've weathered it very nicely, I could, I could add. But um, the problem is, is that you know, LEDs... Um, only put out like kind of a range of wavelengths around red for the red ones and then a range of wavelengths around green and a range of wavelengths around blue. If you graph it, it looks like a lump of red, a lump of green, and a lump of blue. And if you mix the red and green and blue to the point where it is a metamer to white, either to our eyes or a camera, it'll light a piece of white paper which reflects the spectrum evenly um, to look like it's white but it's actually missing parts of the visible spectrum. There's a big gap between red and green, and there's a big gap between green and blue. And if your um, thing that you're lighting up, uh, if it's reflectance spectrum, because every surface has its own graph of how much light it reflects at every wavelength going from 400 to 700 nanometers, that ends up being important. Um, If it's doing anything interesting between the blue and the green or between the green and the red, then your light's just not going to reveal that. And the color's going to be off in the end. And particularly for human skin, there's actually a really interesting part of the reflectance spectrum of of skin, which is where the hemoglobin starts absorbing the shorter wavelengths. And, you know, no matter what your skin color is, you're going to reflect more of the longer wavelengths than the shorter wavelengths because the blood within your skin, the, the hemoglobin is going to be uh, absorbing and other chromophores within your skin will absorb those shorter wavelengths. But the, the hemoglobin itself has a relatively sharp uh, fall off. And if you look at that graph, there's kind of a significant slope between red and green. And since we're not actually lighting that up in a fair way with red, green, and blue LEDs, the skin... Uh, color of people just ends up looking quite weird just using red, green, and blue. So even though you can create any color of light or almost any color of light with those LEDs, you can't create any spectrum of light. And as a result, you can't mimic the spectrum of real-world illuminance using a light stage that's only built out of red, green, and blue LEDs. So can I just step in there and say, so the ironic thing about this is that if someone walked in and saw what you were doing, you'd say, that's white light. Like there's nothing wrong when you're looking at the lights it's just if you actually look at the person lit with the lights, somehow it's not quite right. In other words, you sort of can't tell what's wrong with the lights, but you can sort of tell the person doesn't seem quite right. Absolutely. And that's exactly why a lot of imaging professionals will make use of color checker charts in order to gauge what's really going on with the light. Because you can't actually uh, tell 
how this light's color rendition properties um, are behaving until you see how that light reflects off of a variety of different uh, reflectance samples, each of which has its own curve. I mean, the only other way you could do it is to get a relatively expensive device called a spectroradiometer and then take a, um, uh, a recording, a measurement of the actual graph of all of those wavelengths, which is actually what would be helpful for you know any any anyone who does lighting professionally, um, you know, getting access to one of these things or at least studying what the spectral reflectance uh, graphs of you know all of the that their favorite common illuminants uh, uh, can be very helpful for understanding that you know things are a lot more complicated than just color temperature. Now, what you call a color checker chart, I nickname uh, I use the nickname of a Macbeth chart, but whatever we want to call it. It isn't just as easy as doing a color correction in your Da Vinci to get the colors back to where you want them to be. Oh, I wish it was so that you could just apply a lot and it would automatically compensate. But I've tried that and it's actually really hard to, to tweak the colors on a grading desk to rebalance the Macbeth chart back to where it ought to be. So it's quite a fussy little problem, isn't it? Uh, it is a fussy problem. Um, you certainly can go ahead and, you know, change the color timing of your final image if it's off and, you know, change the, 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 you know, the amplification of the red channel versus the green channel versus the blue channel. And that will let you get the white square to be anything that it needs to be. Uh, if you get more involved in your color correction, you can put in a, a 3D LUT, which means that you're basically letting any color that's starting out in your image contribute to any color that's ending up in your uh, image. So red, green, and blue actually gets matrixed with a three by three matrix to any color in the output. Um, that gives you a free, few more degrees of color correction. But if you're trying to color correct the way that an incandescent light lit a color chart to the way the daylight lights a color chart or a fluorescent light lights a color chart, you will find that it is actually never possible to get it to be a perfect match um, or even a, a very close match just by putting different LUTs on it. Because underneath the hood of all this lighting, there's actually, you know, any number of spectral channels all the way in the rainbow from the blues to the cyans, to the greens, to the oranges, the yellows, uh, uh, and the reds uh, that are interacting with each other. And that's just too many degrees of freedom to try to get the answer right with the limited amount that you can do mapping RGB to RGB at the end. Okay, but we don't have to throw away our Macbeth charts, or in your case, your very, very little Macbeth charts, because you, <laughs> you did actually come up with a uh, solution, but maybe I'm, I'm jumping ahead. Um, well, what we realized is that um, we should certainly try to better approximate the spectra of the light sources that um, actually were present within the scene. And we even realized this in 2002 that we weren't getting the right spectral results. And you can read our future work section. It said, oh, we should add more colors of LEDs and then try to uh, drive, you know, a cyan LED or, a, or a, um, a, some sort of LED between red and green, ideally, uh, to try to better approximate the spectral curves of what's actually out there. But we didn't say how to do it. And we didn't say how to actually, in a practical sense, capture what the light is. But when we built our... Um, our most recent light stage, we actually did put um, amber and cyan LEDs into the color LEDs. And then we already have the white LEDs, which we use for the facial scanning. So we have six channels. And um, in uh, 2003, actually, the follow-on that we did to the, to the 
original light stage three color LED lighting reproduction paper, uh, we, we built a, a nine channel, nine different kinds of LEDs light source. And we'd shown various ways that you can, if you have a spectral radiometer measurement of a light source, you can mix the LEDs in a way that it tries to approximate it as well as possible. And the big finding from that paper, it was uh, Wenger et al. in the Eurographics um, workshop on rendering that year, uh, is that you actually shouldn't just go for uh, literally trying to get the sum of all of the LED spectra to approximate literally the curve of your illuminant, even though that's like the straightforward thing to do and you can solve with the least squares problem. Uh, instead, what we did said is that what we should try to do is mix the LEDs together so that the way that they reflect off a color chart actually looks the same as the color chart actually did in that illumination. And that implicitly also considers the camera that is photographing the color chart or the subject. Right. Because every camera... Yeah. I was going to say, because the cameras themselves, if we would look at a modern camera, yep. is effectively a black and white sensor with a bunch of little gels over every alternate, you know, uh, pixel well that's uh, got a you know green filter or a blue filter or a red filter. There's like a whole lot of color stuff that's happening in your camera that you don't even think about before it gets matrixed into its uh, final, uh, even its raw image. Yeah, absolutely. So, and generally there's three of these different kinds of gels. Some pixels are red, about twice as many are green, and then some pixels are, 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 are blue or they have the blue filters over them. And, you know, it would be nice if every camera manufacturer published reliable, <laughs> you know, uh, MATLAB files of what those curves are, but it's part of the secret sauce of the cameras. So you often have to go measure them yourselves. Um, but if your goal is to get the final look of that person in that stage to look right to a particular camera that you're making your movie with, and you're certainly welcome to say that the camera is the sensitivities of the human eye, so it looks good to somebody who's actually standing there, then you can actually, even if you only have a limited number of LEDs and you can't literally exactly produce any spectrum of light, you can sort of uh, get it to work as well as you can for that particular camera and for that variety of reflectance samples that are on the chart and get a quite satisfactory solution um, for that with even just six different kinds of LEDs. In fact, we even found in our work that even red, green, blue, and white, if you mix them in the way that we um, uh, worked out the maths for this, that uh, you can get something that's within about a 2% error for all of the squares on the color chart. Well, that's interesting because I thought you ended up with a solution with six LEDs being red, green, blue, cyan, amber, and white. Is that, or is that just a, an, an extra level of sort of accuracy? So we, we tried two different... Um, we tried two different kinds here, um, well, two different things that are better than RGB. So we compared RGB to red, green, blue, white, and the best solution we could solve using our maths for that, and then red, amber, green, cyan, blue, and white. Um, as it turns out, not all LEDs are created equal, and you certainly can't just say, I would like to buy a bin of LEDs that have their principal wavelength at 550 nanometers. I mean, maybe somebody makes it, maybe they don't. And there's actually still gaps in the, in the spectrum. Nobody has a bright canary yellow LED. It just like the way that you dope the silicon, it, it just doesn't want to do that wavelength very brightly. 
And so the only way that you can do that is, you know, start with a white LED and then filter it. But you know, white LEDs don't even exist either. They're actually just blue LEDs um, covered up by a pale yellow phosphor, which takes some of the shorter blue wavelengths and then adds the longer wavelengths. But they don't really add enough cyan and they don't add enough deep red. And so you get that kind of weird white LED spectrum too. So there's all these If I could just jump in there for a second, it's not even, that the problem is even more complicated than that, right? Because the quality of the LEDs all get classified and binned. And yep. so if somebody was to buy an LED light, the difference that some are really expensive and some are cheap is that some people just take a pretty broad grouping of LEDs and throw them all on the same light fixture so that they uh, kind of average each other out. And obviously others are more expensive when they're the right bin. So even in a particular type of LED, there's, I don't know, I'm seeing the graph. It's like an astonishing sort of granularity of quality for the manufacturing process. I mean, this is like a really kind of, you just think of an LED as an LED, but it's not even close. It's, it's, it's a significant problem. And actually another uh, thing that I work with is um, I'm um, active within the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences Science and Technology Council. I actually co-chair that with uh, Craig Barron. Yep. And one of our subcommittees is the Solid State Lighting uh, Subcommittee, which has uh, recently been working on exploring some of these issues with solid state lighting and then also its color rendition properties uh, with respect to how it can be used for motion picture production and yeah, being uh, included in how it gets used, uh, you know, seen by real movie cameras. And one of the things that we've uh, worked on over the last year is uh, the development of a proposal for something called a spectral similarity index, which unlike um, the color rendition index of a light, which is designed for human observer and only takes into consideration how a given illuminant uh, reflects off of a kind of random set of color patches. Um, this actually tries to do a, a, a direct measurement of the disparity between that solid state illuminance spectrum and the spectrum of either the, the tungsten or the daylight that it's trying to uh, simulate in a way that's agnostic to, to what kind of camera is actually going to be looking at it. And I mean, it must uh, I think admit, that's going to be very helpful. While the CRI index that you're referring to is terribly useful and obviously, you know, if it's up near 100, it's going to be better. Um, uh-huh. I have to say, yeah, the, the sort of colors that are included in, um, I think it's like R1 to 8, is it, or whatever it is that's in the, um, but certainly yeah, like R9 it's, and it's R13. It's relatively, um, you know, kind of relatively pastel shades yeah. or hues. And all of their spectra are kind of randomly different shaped because they were designed to be physically realizable with different paint samples. Yeah. Um, and as a result, it kind of favors certain areas of the spectrum more strongly than it does uh, others. And it's not even as exhaustive as looking at an entire, you know, um, 24 square color checker chart. Yeah. So that whole CRI thing seems to be a good yardstick when you're buying an LED light, but even that, as you say, doesn't encompass some of the colors that we want to encompass. But anyway, that's a light. We've gone down a slight rat hole here, but it's a fun one. But that's a, that's if I buy an LED light, has a ton of little LEDs on it. If we get back to what you're talking about now, you're talking about in the light stage, yep. each kind of like node, if I want to call it that, where I would be used to seeing a little cluster of lights lighting up or or being of a different color in my um, when the HDR is loaded up. What you're doing yep. now is instead of having RGB ones there, you're either going to have RGB white or RGB plus the cyan, the amber and, and the white. And yep. that, that sounds like you're going to get in the light stage now 
a better representation of the light, but that all is predicated on the fact that you've got a better sample going in to sort of feed it, doesn't it? Uh, ab- absolutely. And when we build the light stage, you know, we, we try to order, you know, quality bins of the LEDs and we try to get all the LEDs the, to, to be from the same uh, bin and be close to the wavelengths that we want. But um, there's still going to be variation, just like you point out. These things are, are not ex- exact um, uh, quantities. Uh, if, if you buy a, you know, a one-inch ball bearing, it is one-inch uh, diameter to a thousandth of an inch. But um, when you buy an LED, it's easily you know, 10 nanometers off in terms of its principal wavelength, uh, unfortunately. So the, the technique that we came up with and, and the reason why we, we felt it was okay to have the first word of the title of our paper to be practical multispectral lighting reproduction is that we wanted to have something that's going to get the best possible result, uh, even in the face of the fact that um, LEDs may or may not be exactly the specter that they want. You don't want to spend a lot of time measuring the spectrum of every single LED that you're in your light stage. And when you capture the lighting environment, you don't want to have to do that by pointing a spectral radiometer in every single direction and actually know the spectrum of the illumination. We know that when you're recording an HDRI map, the easiest thing to do is go in there with some omnidirectional photography technique, uh, mirror balls, fisheye lenses, um, Ricoh Theta S, um, which shoots an RGB image. And then we have to get some kind of like also easy to acquire information to tell us enough about what the spectrum of the light is so that we can then drive the light stage appropriately with all six channels, or if we're just trying to do four channels, then the four channels of light, uh, in order to get the best possible uh, match to the original illumination as seen on our subject to the camera that we're using. So if I'm not mistaken, in the same way that you said that you ended up with a RGB white solution that was pretty close and a super version that was the RGB green, uh, sorry, RGB... (laughs) Red, green, blue, amber, and uh, and, and uh, white, white. white one. Thank you. Sorry, I was getting tongue tied there. As you had two solutions to the LEDs, you have a again two solutions effectively to the sampling problem. One that's quite involved but brilliant, and the other one that uh, is, I guess, more practical. Can you run us through both of those? Well, th- they use exactly the same uh, maths, and in fact, we can use the same math to drive RGB LEDs just about as well as you could possibly drive L- RGB LEDs. But even if you do that as as well as we ever figured out, it still doesn't work um, acceptably well. Um, so, the technique that we have. You want to go out there and capture the light, and then you want to drive your light stage with it. So if the person stands on the light stage, take a picture of them, it basically takes the same photo of them looking lit the same, same directions, colors, intensities of light as it reflects off the skin, as if they were actually standing in the original environment where you where you captured yeah, the light. Yeah, that's the holy grail. That's, that, that's what we were trying to, can we do this really well? Um, and we wanted to do it in a way that isn't much harder than how you would drive a light stage um, uh, before. So we did this, um, and this is work uh, done collaboratively. Uh, my grad student, Chloe Legendre, uh, did some great work. This is her first year at the USC ICT and uh, did amazing work on the SIGGRAPH paper. Uh, you know, we had uh, Xu Ming Yu, uh, Adair, Jay, and uh, Andrew from, from the lab as well, and Sumant Patnaik, who's a uh, kind of a color science-leaning uh, professor uh, from the University of Central Florida and co-authored the High Dynamic Range Imaging book with us back in the day. 
um, was on a sabbatical with us, and he was very helpful in some of the discussions of figuring out the spectrum of light and such. So it's a, it's a, it's definitely collaborative work. But in the end, after actually thinking about all sorts of ways to make this mathematically complicated, which we found very unsatisfying, uh, all we really try to do is we drive the LEDs so that a color chart in the light stage looks the same as a color chart would out in the world with the one complication that that actually has to be true for every possible direction of light um, as much as possible. And instead of actually measuring, okay, what's the spectral reflectance of every square of the chart? Um, uh, what's the spectrum of every one of our light sources? What's the spectrum of the light out there in the world? Um, spectral measurements are slow and painful and expensive to do. What we do is we start by just putting the color chart in the light state. So it's one of these color checkers. And we actually, I, I try not to say Macbeth because it's now owned by X-Rite. So I don't think it's a Macbeth chart anymore. It's still a color checker chart. In fact, what we do is we actually um, found that on Edmund Optics site, you can buy miniature color checker charts. They're, They're tiny little things, aren't they? Like kind of pack it, of cards. They're, 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 they actually make three sizes. They make the micro, the nano, and the pico. They're, they're not a factor of a thousand um, difference in size between them. Um, but they're uh, about uh, three centimeters, two centimeters, and one centimeter across, uh, approximately. And um, they're actually a little bit funny. You should get the matte ones because some of them have uh, a gloss on the grayscale um, uh, they are, they're a little pricey. They're about $200 US uh, each. So when we did an arrangement of five, that was like, you know, uh, a, a little bit of research money uh, for that. But uh, they're definitely worth it because you can, you know, you don't need to see that many pixels of a color checker in order to get a good robust measurement of what color that, that patches. Um, so what we do is we, we put one of these in the light stage and we just photograph it with the camera that we're going to use. And we see what color uh, or just what it looks like lit by each one of the different spectra of LEDs that we get. So if we're using red, amber, green, cyan, blue, white, we take six pictures of it. And that gives us the response uh, to, all of the, to all of those different um, um, uh, LEDs. And then we realize that any possible way that the light stage can make this color chart look is going to be some linear combination or some some mix of these six different RGB images that we took of it, the way that it looked uh, in RGB to the camera under the red light, under the amber light, the green, the cyan, the blue, and uh, the white. So suppose we take the color chart out in the real world, and it might be lit by daylight or mixed lighting or um, tungsten, tungsten light in an office, or even lit by LED lighting through filters or such. Uh, and we get a picture of that because we're using that to record the illumination. We can then drive the light stage to make the color chart and the light stage look to the camera very, very similarly to the way that the color chart looked in the real world just by solving a straightforward system of equations to figure out how much of the red light plus how much of the amber plus how much of the green plus how much of the cyan, the blue, and the white of the images shot under those do you need to add together to produce the same image that you saw of what that color chart looked like in the real world? 
And you can do that with a least square solution. The problem with that is that it might tell you to turn your cyan LED on negatively and your green LED <laughs> on positively, and that's not useful. <laughs> no, no. Uh, you'd lose your practical tag with that one. Yes, there, there would. So you can, actually, you can actually do that, but then you have to take two images. Once where you turn on all the LEDs that had a positive solve, and then you turn on all the LEDs with the absolute value of what they got on the negative solve, and then you... Um, Oh, okay. do, yeah, I see other. what you're doing. Yeah, okay, I hadn't thought of that, but okay, uh, yep. So you can do that. We did one little example in the in the paper, but you can also do something called non-negative least squares, where it solves for the best you can do, uh, given that all the things have to be zero or greater, and that's also a standard function in any you know linear algebra package these days. So and it runs very quickly, and you know we're only trying to figure out the sum of six different three-channel images over 24 color checker chart uh, patches. And this is, this is a trivial amount of math for a computer these days. So that will basically make a color chart in the light stage look very satisfyingly exactly the way it would look. Um, and when I say exactly, I don't mean exactly. I mean, but like within 1% uh, in terms of relative RGB pixel value as it would under tungsten or daylight or um, incandescent or whatever mixed lighting you have out there. And it's not because the LEDs literally uh, sum up to the spectrum of the light that was out there in, in, in the world. It'll be different. We're still, you know, a little weak in certain areas of the spectrum. Uh, but just the number of degrees of freedom available and the fact that there are some bounds as to how complicated the reflectance spectra of, of real-world samples can be, it, it works out that you can get a very close match. But the problem with that is that that only works for just kind of like omnidirectional light that's the same color coming from, from everywhere. And what we really want to do is in the light stage, we've got, you know, 343 lights in there. We want each one of them to be driven accurately to mimic the color rendition properties and intensity properties of the light that's coming from just that direction uh, in the environment. And when you just put one color checker out there, it's actually reflecting you know, the whole half of the environment that's in front of it. And that's not a heck of a lot of angular resolution at all. So we had to figure out a way to have a color chart reflect only the light from a particular cone of the environment and then get that color chart uh, to somehow move around and reflect all the different directions of the lighting that you'd want to reproduce in the light stage. And to do that, um, we actually built a, uh, a, a black paper, construction paper box that the color chart was in. And then there was a, um, a hole covered with a diffuser on the other end, uh, which basically worked as some kind of like long snoot uh, over the color chart. So it could only be illuminated by about a 10 degree cone of the environment. So now I'll, I'll the, put a photo of this in the show notes. But, but what you're effectively saying is you want to aim a camera at a color chart that's facing a different direction at kind of 10 degree intervals all the way around. And the way you worked out how to do this was to produce this sort of clever, you know, it was almost like a reverse L kind of bouncing back mirror trick that yeah. allowed it to basically only see up to the top left at 10 degrees and then up to the top left another 10 degrees to the right kind of thing. I mean, it's hard to imagine what this is without seeing a picture of it, but when you see a picture yeah. of it, it's pretty obvious that, but, but this is literally so that if I was on set, for example, and I had a couple of Kingstons and a couple of, uh, sorry, a couple of um, Tungstons and a couple of LEDs and a Kinoflow and an LED what, over here and stuff, that I'm going to get not just 
the sort of component that's going in, but the sort of exact nature of the way that color chart is when facing that LED or a little bit to the left facing that that uh, Kina flow. And that that is an assumption that I'm not just interested now in that illumination, which would be maybe bounce off a mirror ball, like get a, a level. It's actually, uh-huh. no, these are how those colors react under that particular light from this particular direction and just that alone. Absolutely. And so... Uh, by putting this device with the camera looking at the color chart, which is shaded to only be illuminated by this one cone of the environment, we put that on a, on a cheap pan tilt uh, panoramic photography mount, a, a Gigapan uh, yeah. Epic Pro. And um, then it can move it to all the positions that roughly correspond to the directions that the light stage lights come from, just on its regular automatic programming. And then we process each chart into the mix of red, green, and blue LEDs that you should have from that direction of the, of the light stage. And as we showed in the paper, it actually then um, lights the person with a very close approximation to all of the, the colors and intensities and, and color rendition properties of the complex spectra of the lights that are in the environment. So if I could just check you there for a second. If I was to look at that picture that was stitched together... Obviously, if I used a normal pan and tilt camera and uh, on one of those rigs, it would just piece together the jigsaw puzzle that is the spherical world around me, right? I get basically get something that would be great in a VR helmet because I've just taken a photo at every direction as it goes oh. away around. But you're taking a photo of a color chart at every direction as you look around. So you're not taking a photo of the sky. You're taking a color chart of what the sky looks like. On, sorry, you're not taking a photo of the sky and then piecing that together into a spherical map. You're taking a photo of a color chart only lit by the sky. So you're just, is that actually look like a picture or does it look like a... Well, I guess it actually you... looks, so we never assemble this panorama. It's a series of uh, uh, images of a color chart. So you every just never image in this panorama is a, is a color chart. What we do though is that we'll sometimes like cut out the, the, the color chart from each one, you know, actually after sampling its pixel values of its different squares. And then we can concatenate all of those into basically... Uh, a panorama made up of small color charts of the way that um, the color chart would appear lit by the illuminant coming from each one of those uh, directions. And that becomes the data that we can drive the light stage with the one problem that um, we haven't quite achieved practicality because it takes about an hour to aim the color chart in all these different directions. And I already know that people sometimes get chased off of film sets who are just simply trying to document what the lighting is like. And this certainly wouldn't wash in a lot of circumstances. Well, okay, but, but there's uh, there's two things I'd say to that. One, I think your other problem is the sun would move in and out. But the other problem is that too? is you do want ground truth whenever you can get it. So I, I accept that there's a validity in doing something, even if it's um, just a, for a, an academic exercise, just to get a reading. But, but if, if I can just give people a mental picture for a second. I guess if we just took the, a red square from our Macbeth chart or your color chart, just forget everything else, just the red square and piece all of those together, I guess I would kind of get a picture of a spherical mapping, wouldn't I? Because effectively, if the light is hitting it, it's really bright. And so that would be where the sun was. And if it's really, really dark looking straight down, then the red patch would be really, really dark because so much light hitting it when it's facing down. Yep. And thus, if you piece just those little tiny red squares all together... Um, you'd get a obviously much lower res, but you would still get a a illumination picture that would be recognizable, as I'm trying to say, of the world all made out of just red squares. 
Absolutely. And in fact, if you did it for the white square and you set your resolution of your pan tilt mount to be as high as you can, you'd actually get a perfectly respectable panorama um, that looks like an RGB panorama of the um, of the scene. So you might have said this already. We, did you did you bracket these as well or not? That's that's exa- exa- exactly what the problem was going to be. Is that um, this already took too long to shoot, so we didn't want to have to do bracketing. And while the real world actually has a very wide dynamic range, uh, a color checker chart, you know, the reflectances. I mean, the brightest square is white. The darkest square is you know, getting down to like 3% reflective, but there's not nearly as much range on a color chart. It's kind of designed, you can take one photo of it and see what's going on with it. Right. So, so in other words, if, act- it, if it peaked at white yep. and you quadrupled the sun because suddenly it was picking up a magnified whatever, it would still just be white and you would have no dynamic range there because the world has just clipped it effectively for you. Absolutely. So, right. so, so uh, we have to, we have to, we don't want clipping. We don't want the white square to, to, to clip in any of these images. But we know that on one of these images, uh, it very well might point the, um, uh, you know, the aperture of this black box right at the sun. Yeah. And the color chart's going to get illuminated with 100 times more light, hundreds or more, than when it's pointed toward, you know, the green grass. Right. Uh, so what we actually did is we used our Canon Rebel camera and actually set it to auto exposure mode and we relied on uh, and we just let it expose on the chart properly we put the chart on a gray background kind of yeah. roughly 18 percent gray background so that its metering would do exactly what it's supposed to and then every color chart image gets exposed properly and then we look at the exif information on each one of these uh raw images that come off and then we you know basically multiply in the exposure factor that the camera chose when it set the uh, the shutter speed. So literally uh, the metadata of the raw file is telling you that it shuttered it to f22 and you just know therefore that that image even though it looks normal is is would have been way more eliminated. Yes, absolutely. And we, we generally, uh, yeah, and we, fi- we fixed the, uh, the f-stop, the aperture, because it's a little unreliable how oh, much of course, more yeah, light sorry, comes yeah, in yeah, and out gotta... uh, with that. So we fixed that at like f8, and then yeah. we let the range of um, shutter speeds from like a four thousand yeah. to you know ten seconds uh, to do that. And and if you see that this picture here had a pixel value of 0.5 on the white square, uh, but it was taken with a thousandth of a second, we know that's a much brighter picture uh, than if you had a one second exposure with a 0.5 on the Got white it. square. It's a factor of a thousand difference there. Huh, ingenious! Wow. Because here was I thinking that you would have not used automatic exposure on a, any kind of rig like this in a, in a decade, but there you go. It's the only way to do it. Huh, brilliant. Okay, so now we've been talking at length about this system and I can see that that would give me, or give you, <laughs> some really useful information. But you've alluded several times to the fact this didn't seem like a very practical solution on set. Yeah, so we had to come back to something that um, was, was quick, to, quick to set up and one of the things that we realized is that we do need to get enough angular information about the color and intensity of the light you know, to drive our you know, 300 plus lights, light sources in the light stage. But maybe the spectral rendition quality doesn't need quite as much um, detail. And the reason for that is that, you know, uh, 
uh, surfaces in the scene will typically you know, either be diffuse or specular or some combination of it. Uh, and diffuse surfaces integrate a whole wide area of illumination um, and, uh, before reflecting it back toward the camera. So you don't get a lot of angular discrimination ability uh, with the reflectance of diffuse surfaces. And specular surfaces, you do get a lot of angular discrimination, but most surfaces, uh, particularly for the human face, the specular reflection is the same color as the light source. It doesn't actually modulate the spectrum of the illumination. So, so, so in other words, if I've got a shot of uh, an actress sitting there and there's a mm-hmm. light kind of back over her left shoulder, that's going to appear as a spectral highlight on her cheek because of vanilla apart from anything else. And that's going yep. to be the light color, not none of your hemoglobin stuff is coming into play. Whereas on her cheek or on her nose, it's getting the full blast of the front light and her hemoglobin's going crazy and adjusting the, the, the actual color. Yes. Right? Yeah, okay. Yes. And these, the shine component of the skin pretty much maintains the spectrum of the light that hits it as it goes to the camera and doesn't modulate it in any interesting way. So as long as the color of the light is correct in RGB, the specular reflection is going to look right for specular stuff. And for diffuse reflections where the spectrum of the light really matters because that's where it's going to interact with the stuff under the skin, the melanin and the hemoglobin, which have the interesting curves, um, that's a relatively diffuse reflection where the precise um, you know, spectrum of the light at every single degree around the environment isn't going to matter that much because it's all getting averaged together from a whole hemisphere before it reflects back. Okay, so where are you going with this? What does that give well, you? So essentially what we ended up doing is saying if we have a traditional HDRI map, so like a mirror sphere shot with bracketed exposures as an RGB image in, 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 in high dynamic range, and just a few observations of a color chart. In fact, even just one color chart that's there in the scene. In fact, it can be that same color chart that professional lighting capture people just go in as a matter of course and even will photograph you know, their uh, mirror ball, their diffuse ball, their color chart, you know, kind of as reference. Yep. Here we can actually use it as a scientific measurement of what the color rendition properties of the illumination are. And what we did, and this ended up being like, you know, the, the one, uh, you know, subtle piece of math in the paper was to figure out if you have an RGB panorama that tells you the, the visible like color, just only an RGB of the light from every direction. And then you have the observation of a color chart or a few color charts pointing in different directions. How do you spectrally promote that RGB image so that it effectively is multispectral, you know, color rendition information of the illumination coming from every possible uh, direction? And what we ended up doing is our, our final, you know, augmented light probe system that we that we um, put together. You can probably show a picture of it. It's got a, yep. a mirror ball. It's got a black acrylic ball there, which helps you ca- cover more dynamic range um, in a single shot if you need to. And we, we needed that for the, the multispectral video light probe that we did as our final example. Uh, and then it actually has like a little arrangement of five color charts. Uh, one points forward, one points 45 degrees to the right, and then there's 45 degrees left, 45 degrees pointing up, and 45 degrees pointing down, and just all stuck into a little 3D print that Jay Bush made. 
And what we do is we essentially, from just those five color charts, we can hallucinate what a color chart pointed in any particular direction. In fact, illuminated just with a little cone of light from every particular direction corresponding to the light stage lights would look like. And in the end, it's as simple as taking your color chart for a particular direction and recoloring it so that it's white square, just scaling its RGB components so that it's white square matches the RGB color of what the HDRI map is telling you the light was like in that direction. And then it hallucinates what a color chart would look lit from just that one direction. Okay, I'm just going to have to. I'm just going to have to jump here here with a couple of quick questions. So, so I love this word hallucinate. Like most people <laughs> would would not use that word. So, what do you mean is like it's more than a. It's like an estimation. Is that what you mean by that when you say yeah, hallucination? It's, it's, it's a guesstimation, or it's okay. the. It's know, like we a didn't, informed We didn't guess. go through that lengthy process of actually pointing a color chart in every direction. Okay. All we did is we used our mirror ball to look in all possible directions with our fast capture process. And we even attach the mirror ball to this arm that's rigidly attached to the camera so you can um, uh, go out there, um, you know, well armed with your with your light probe. Uh, and if you've got a remote release for the camera and the camera is set to take uh, seven exposures as soon as you hold that down, you can shoot your HDRI map in this multispectral way in you know under two seconds and just kind of duck out of the way uh, at the end. So the reason that you so just to be clear about this, so I'm getting my HDR from the mirror ball. So in the rig that you've got, there was a mirror ball on the left, there was this black ball on the right, and there's a bunch of color yep. charts in the middle. Yep. So I'm not doing I'm doing a bracketed set on the mirror ball. Just that gives me my normal out of the box HDR. Is that right? Uh, absolutely. Okay, and so I don't have to spin anything around because it's all just a traditional... No, and the mirror ball reflects almost the entire environment, not just the front half. Um, sure, because it's... But, well, there's a and, little hole behind it, but yeah, we'll ignore that. And the, yep, yep. Um, um, but can I just ask you a question? In colour, yeah. I've always wanted to know this, in colour, does the mirror ball tint the world? Like, does the silver mirror tint? Uh, it does slightly uh, in the ones that I've uh, measured... And you should measure this. What's very important to measure is how reflective is your mirror ball. And the one that we use in this paper is one that I got from a Dubai juggling equipment. Oh, uh, those guys are great, yeah. Acryl, uh, uh, balls. And it's a chrome, and it reflects about 60% of the light, and it reflects ever so slightly more blue light than it does red light. And there's the, the trick where you take a picture of the ball in the same frame as a piece of paper that you draw a circle on so that you can both see the color of the paper in that frame at the same time that you see the color of its reflection in the ball. And then the ratio of those is what percent of red light and what percent of green light and one percent of blue light it actually reflects. And so you should correct the ball to be perfect mirror before you start driving light stages with it. Okay, and, be, and the second, the next question I've got is, before we get to this video example, which I'm keen to ask about, is that all that the black ball is being used for or is the black ball being used for anything else other than the black example of is, video? The black ball is used to get your, it's about four and a half stops down in most places from the mirror ball to yeah. extend the dynamic range that you get. If you're actually taking the HDR series, you don't need to bother with the black ball. As That's it turns thought, out, yeah. it's nice to put it in the, in the paper for the visualization because it actually gives the person reading the paper a much better sense 
of the uh, light distribution in the scene and the actual colors they are because the um, image that's exposed properly to see the charts, uh, the highlights are clipped in the mirror ball um, pretty badly. So you wouldn't necessarily see that there's different colors of illumination. As yeah, you'd, otherwise you'd have to tone map your paper photo or your thing that, yeah, okay. So, so that makes sense. Okay, so now, and then I'm just one last question. So I do this, let's say that I'm going to use the mirror ball if I need it. Oh, sorry, the black ball if I need it. Um, I'm going to get an approximation, a guesstimate of, of what the color is hitting the world at where this thing is at. And it's going to get decreasingly accurate or it's going to decrease in accuracy as it moves away from a normal that would come back at the camera. So as it tr sort of tangentially kind of moves around, it gets progressively, I presume, kind of less accurate until at some point where it's like pretty not very accurate. It's sort of more accurate uh, facing us, is that right? Oh, uh, the, uh, the color. So yeah, we actually don't have an observable color chart that points away from the camera because then we just get a picture of yeah, the back sure. of the color chart. But the light that comes from the back of the camera is not going to play or it comes from the opposite uh, direction as, as the, the spheres that the camera is looking at, uh, isn't going to play much of an illumination effect on the diffuse component of the face. Those lighting directions might play a role uh, in the rim light of the face that could be significant. But since those are specular reflections, it's not going to alter the spectrum of the illumination coming in. And so as long as you match its RGB color, it's still going to look right to the camera. Right. So so I guess what I'm saying I think is is right, which is that it's more accurate facing us, but then people are facing us. We want their face to be accurate and the back of them, as you say, as long as it's sort of the right RGB, it'll work. Um, but in a sense, the whole system is sort of by nature of just angles and reflection angles. It's going to be facing us kind of accurate. And so this is, this is like a fast version with a couple of huge compromises. So my bottom line is how well does it work? Uh, as it turns out, it, uh, it, it worked uh, uh, very well and, and we were very happy with the, uh, with the quality of the matches. So we um, did a number of different lighting scenarios where we would uh, go to an environment take a picture of an actor in the environment, uh, quickly take a light probe of that, then um, solve the, the mass of how we should drive the multispectral LEDs in the light stage, have the actor step into the light stage, take a picture of them in the light stage, and then compare those side by side. Uh, and um, the, the appearance of the, of the face looks very, very, very close with uh, red, green, blue, cyan, amber, white. Um, uh, also quite close with red, green, blue, white, not very close with RGB. Again, it has those color saturation issues. And okay. when we do it with a and, color and checker stills, chart, those also match too. And that stills we're referring to right this second, right? Because I'm in your paper, yes. there's these great examples of a, an actress who's, I presume, African-American and another girl who's what I'd call white Caucasian and or woman. Yep. And it's pretty obvious uh, when you look at the straight RGB a reproduction to the just the glancing look at it that the colors don't look as good as the original but your um your reproductions are much better so that's that's really impressive now you mentioned this video before and you've also got video and and i recognize the actor that you used for that um <laughs> as a major contributor to uh, our field over the years um but no doubt a, a good friend of ict which is greg downing but let's leave greg as an actor for a second yep. greg is 
is filmed. So there are two things I want to ask you about. Firstly, obviously, I need you to expand on how the heck it works when you're not when you're doing with a video camera. But the other thing is, up until now, you've been working in an area that I'm relatively comfortable with. It's like the stuff to do with the Canon camera and all this sort of knowledge of that. When you go to film, it isn't film, of course, it's an ARRI or it's a RED or something like this. Does this all apply equally to uh, an Alexa as to it does a, um, an Epic? Um, well, I, I should say we haven't done it with a, with a RED or, or an ARRI Alexa yet, but um, as long as you're getting, um, you know, uh, raw linear data off of the camera sensor or something that you can linearize. So there's like a uh, an inverse LUT for the red camera yep. to linearize the red code data, which uh, people trust pretty well. Uh, and I presume there's something similar for the for the Ari Alexa. As, as long as you're doing something that's going to be proportional to the original the camera sensors, and even if it has gone through a color matrix, as long as it's the same color matrix throughout, then the math should work out that it will make the appearance of the subject look the same to that camera when they're in the light stage as when they were actually out in the environment. So I should say to people that maybe aren't thinking this uh, intimately as, as uh, you know, the, a Canon camera can record video, of course. It just records it in a compressed format that isn't, it's got the gamma burnt in and it's it's just not a, you know, a raw type video. It's a raw type still, but it's not a raw type video where these other cameras are producing something that's much more. Well, that's enough. a very a good point. And this actually uh, is going to, this is this is actually going to uh, end up um, explaining a little bit uh, of uh, how how Greg Downing got to be uh, as involved in the project as he, as he was, which is that um, we did make some efforts to try to invert the color matrices and gamma curves and such that the you know our, our Canon cameras do when they shoot video, and we actually never got to anything that we really felt was like SIGGRAPH quality science on any of that. Uh, and we realized, you know what, we really need raw video off a Canon camera. And that means we need to find someone who has a camera that can run Magic Lantern. And we Which can is shoot. A, effectively a third party hack on a Canon camera. <laughs> and thank goodness for those people. Shout outs to Magic Lantern. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, um, unfortunately, it won't run on the Canon 1DX, which is what we are fully stocked with for our light stage work. It runs on a Canon 5D Mark III quite nicely and will shoot even slightly higher than high-def video at 24 uh, frames per second. Paul, the, the 5D Mark III is God's gift to everyone. It's a, it's a marvelous piece of <laughs> cinematography. So if, anyway. And if you take that and you take Magic Lantern and you take Greg Downing, and it turns yep. out they can all come together if you uh, place That's the nice appropriate desperate phone call, yeah. um, then uh, we were actually able to do that. And there's just enough dynamic range in that Canon RAW so that when we... Um, uh, moved the you know multispectral light probe through our, our set, um, and as it turns out, there's there's one kind of standing movie set at our institute, which was actually built for another project called the Gunslinger Project, and they graciously said we could shoot our. Uh, it's it's like a you go in and then there's like interactive. Um, uh, rear projected uh, characters that you converse with and, you know, you can try to uh, talk, talk yourself uh, into or out of a shootout with the bad guy in the saloon that's there. Um, and, as you do, uh, just happen to have at the research lab a saloon. You, but yes. yeah, okay. you know, we have a saloon and, and yeah. uh, we realized, you know, okay, that's probably the best thing we can do is shoot at the uh, saloon. And we basically rented every weird spectrum of light that we could. So we had incandescent light and we had uh, various filtered LED lights. We got a, a really, we got a Kino flow to have a strong fluorescent source in there. And then we put various gels on, 
other light sources. And then we uh, tried to do a shot where we would um, uh, shoot Greg moving through the scene, and then we would shoot the light probe moving through the scene. And we'd have Greg sit in the light stage. We'd play the light back on him. We shot a clean plate as well. And then we would composite Greg into it, and hopefully he looks the same in the light stage as he did uh, when he was actually uh, on set. And we ended up having to kind of push him on a dolly in order to get enough repeatability from when we uh, shot the... Um, but the uh, saloon didn't have a motion control rig lying around? It, it did not. Um, but uh, our, uh, our, our producer, Kathleen Haas, went and picked up uh, some, some dolly track for us, and we, we rigged something for that. Uh, the end effect is that Greg is um, riding some sort of uh, <laughs> surprisingly stable and short horse uh, in front of the <laughs> saloon. Um, and there were, there were uh, hats as well at the saloon too, which actually have retroflective tape on top to, to um, detect where the person's looking in the interactive demo. So we decided that Greg looked the most plausibly like a cowboy in the <laughs> cowboy hat. That's, um, a, that's, that's absolutely true. <laughs> Indeed. He, he did a great job. He actually has some theater experience in his background as well. And as you can guess, this was all shot, you know, sort of in the, in the wee hours of the night as well. So he also did a good job of acting like he was a bit more awake than any of us were too. But um, we got You're not telling stage. me that a SIDGRAPH paper was delivered with some late nights beforehand. Surely not. That would be a first, wouldn't it? Anyway, I'm, uh, I'm sorry, I'm being sarcastic, but... Yes, <laughs> indeed. And I'm surprised that even 20 years after the first SIGGRAPH paper that I was uh, uh, staying up into the wee hours for, it still seems to be part of, uh, par part of what I do for a living. And I'm realizing that that's uh, actually an enormous privilege to be able to say that. So um, in the side of the light stage, we, we did put a bit of green screen behind Greg. We've also experimented with, obviously, infrared uh, screen uh, in our earlier work. Um, the Canon 5D Mark III, uh, awesome as it is, does not have an infrared channel in it as yet, and there's no software hack to uh, create that. I think there's so, actually filters to stop it having that, but anyway. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> um, so we had to resort to a uh, green screen and uh, get some um, compositing advice from our friends in the uh, uh, community. Rob Niederhorst actually uh, consulted a little bit for pulling a good green screen. And uh, when we finally comp the lighting reproduction, light stage Greg on top of the clean plate and play the lighting, you know, with the lighting having been played back on him, uh, the result does appear to kind of match the, the color rendition properties of all the different kind of yellowish and bluish and, and reddish and, and different spectrum of, uh, of illumination. I have to say, it's one of the things that I was really glad that you did because I've often said that uh, just taking a light probe reading at a point on a set does not solve all problems as people tend to walk around and and obviously it's quite a big difference when you walk around on set how the light changes on you. Now, a lot of things that people do in terms of taking the lights out of an HDR and placing them in a CG physical 3D space to try and compensate for that. But nevertheless, you don't get the same effect uh, as you do of moving a probe through a space. So moving the probe through a space is a good thing to do full stop. Moving the probe through a space with lots of different types of lights is really a, a challenge for a compositor to sort of be able to pull off. And that would be one heck of a grading problem to try and grade the foreground green screen um, to, to, uh, to work. The only thing I was going to say is that, uh, of course, one of the things that green screen programs do is, is deliberately affect the colors of the thing that it's pulling because it's hitting obviously part of the spectrum. But Gre yep. Greg is fairly clear of any green, so I presume it was a pretty, um, um, you know, pretty we, uh, we, forgiving process. Th that's a very good point. And um, 
you know, a lot of the, the color differencing methods and keying techniques actually uh, affect the, um, uh, the foreground element uh, yeah. significantly and can actually make your entire movie look like it's kind of two-strip technicolor at the, at the, yep. at the worst case. So uh, one of our challenges was to uh, pull that key without doing any color balance adjustments to uh, the subject himself. And that's, that's how we did it. Um, the final version that we're going to do that's a little newer than what you've seen and we'll show it the paper has been better edges. Um, and we're doing a tiny bit of green suppression just in that like five pixels of, of edge around there. But uh, all of the quality of the lighting on him is, is, is totally uh, unedited. And in our, you know, our teaser images where we show um, our friends Jessica and Janetta uh, with the very nice compositing done from the, the second flash image on the, on the back that we used to get the map, um, you know, looking very similarly uh, in the light stage to how they looked in the uh, outdoor environments. It's, it's important to note there's absolutely no color correction uh, applied to those to get them to match. It's literally the raw files out of the camera and uh, other than scaling for the fact that there's uh, more light outside than there is inside, and that's just a uniform intensity scaling, um, that that is untouched and it actually works that well uh, out of the box. So just to be clear about this, if somebody's in a light stage and you want to pull a key on them, there are ways that you light up a, a card behind them that causes just to get a mat literally a black and white image that can be used for keying. And that's what you're saying. So those are the technical ones that are completely free of the keying. Whereas obviously a person on a green screen filmed on a hacked Canon camera does still require <laughs> a, a keyer, but you are right. I mean, obviously one can easily uh, tweak your keyer so that you have a clean foreground stuffed in. Um, and also I should point out that when you see these images, it'll be clear there isn't a lot of spill on Greg. It's not as if he had a you know huge amount of green spill. Um, you were pretty careful to keep that green... Um, well back, I can see uh, from the way it's uh, in the yes. in the paper. So, so I, I I have to say, to my eye, they look great. I mean, they look remarkably um, useful. I guess there are other uh, issues, um, and I, I'd like to get your opinion on this because one of the things that you've done here is you've derived a particularly good solution. Assuming that I have a light stage with multispectral lighting, <laughs> um, as we all do, as we all do, well, as you do, but yeah. Um, but are there lessons to be learned from this in terms of being able to um, inform uh, if I was trying to light someone not with a light stage? I know that's not what this paper is about, but I think somebody listening to this podcast would be sort of like, well, what if I didn't have a light stage? Is there anything here that I could learn from that that applies? Is there any way that I could do an analysis like this and get something in that would inform me? Is there any way that that would be something that a, another PhD grad might uh, tackle in the future? Uh well, uh, ab absolutely. And uh, one of the things is that um, uh, I, I just had a, a chance, um, again, with uh, my grad student, Chloe, to uh, attend a film shoot. Uh, USC was actually filming a, a promotional piece at Big Light Stage 6, which we happen to be working at. And you know, as it turns out, they didn't need to bring any lights because, duh, you're filming on a light stage. But the lights <laughs> that the gaffers brought uh, were this this very brand new uh, Ari sky panel light. And it's actually a light that in fact has red and green and blue and white LEDs in it. And you can kind of dial it to, you know, a daylight or a, or a tungsten. Um, 
And, uh, you know, using the mass that we have, we would actually be able to show you can really match very specific light sources. And it's not just about matching the lights in the scene. You also have to match all the fill light in the scene. And that means you also have to be able to match the spectrum of, you know, daylight bounced off of grass, which is its own interesting spectrum, and then producing the fill light on the inside of the, of the face. But uh, I was very happy to see that the solid-state lighting industry uh, is adding more than three spectral channels uh, to these solid-state light sources. And I think that uh, when we drive those, and you could hook those up with DMX, um, to build, you know, a very expensive but very high quality, very large light stage if you wanted to, uh, you could get these accurate matches uh, with even equipment that's um, not even specialized equipment at this point. Yeah, I mean, obviously, if you were working on a major thing like a Jungle Book type uh, project where there's a good reason for having a um, very much virtual uh, set environment, you know, it'd be completely feasible to hook up an enormous number of those sorts of uh Arri lights, some uh, you know those the terrific things, those uh, those soft light box uh, sky panels, and of course, as you say, to a control desk that would be uh, something that could be really well informed by uh, a system that would be set up for months, you know, on a on a major feature that would make sense. I think that's always been something that I've hoped would some would happen is that someone would take a. Uh, I know you've made a giant light stage, um, one that somebody could walk around in, but yeah. um, there is, I think, a step there to to inform a more traditional set. Um, and you are learning so much information on set with the capture stage here alone. But as I say, that's not what the paper's about. The paper's about um, faithfully reproducing that uh, back in the light stage. And and to that end, uh, if we go back to, I don't know, um, uh, Curious Case of Benjamin Barton, there was really good use there at the light stage of putting a maquette in the light stage to get a reference uh-huh. of the maquette under those different lighting conditions so that when they actually did a comp, they had a reference to work to. So there are sort of points in a production cycle where light stages are terribly useful as what we alluded to earlier, which is just ground truth. Yeah, and the, the, the Benjamin Button, think of that as a spectral case. That was a case of image-based relighting. So the data that we acquired of the old Brad Pitt um, maquette for digital domain was actually lit by... Uh, white LEDs, which yep. are slightly odd spectrum, but it's it's not missing any <laughs> wavelengths. And then we actually produce the effect of different colors of light by uh, color timing those different lighting passes we had from all the different directions. And that actually uh, keeps you out of spectral trouble significantly better than trying to light with these kind of narrow spectrum RGB lights, um, which fortunately is not how we went about it. And the digital domain did, did well with that. Uh, but movie, if you were doing uh, that again, yeah. and that was years ago, right? Yeah. Is it not true that I could do the same kind of thing? I could have a character's maquette lit so that my team could see what that, you know, version of the representation of the person looks like under very accurate lighting um, yep. in the light stage. What we would do today, particularly if it were a static subject like the like the maquette, uh, is we would uh, illuminate the um, the maquette not just with every lighting direction, but also all the different spectra of illumination. And then when you remix the lighting, you can actually 
uh, produce the effect of having any of those LEDs on in any proportion so that it properly, uh, you know, according to our, the paper, would mimic those illuminants from different directions. And that's actually something that we're uh, uh, working on. Chloe Legendre is uh, leading some efforts on that, and uh, hopefully we'll have some uh, future future papers. What, what we're a little concerned about is that one of the easiest ways to get a whole bunch of, um, you know, color-controllable LEDs around with considerable density is to use LED panels that you would use for jumbotron displays. And as we know, that was the, the technique yeah, uh, yeah. adopted by Framestore for gravity, gravity which is yeah. to surround the, uh, the actors with the LED panels to do the lighting reproduction. And those are exactly what has this weird color cast to them and these problems with the color rendition. But in that case, they were only illuminating you know, a single subject you know, they're, 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 the spacesuits were added in, in post-production yeah. and were white anyway. And every single one of those shots, because it's a high-end movie, uh, is going to go through a color correction pass. So you can actually work and dial that out. And they got very good at that, obviously. But if you wanted to use it for, you know, just more general, you know, film production work where you don't want to have to worry about tweaking all the colors all the time and just kind of know that you're getting the right answer. And if... If you want to tweak it, then it's to get um, it's for artistic reasons, not for technical reasons. Uh, then being able to do it this way, I think, is an improvement. And so I I hope that there would be a need at some point for red, green, blue, white uh, LED panels, and we'd love to make use of those in some future light stage. Hmm. Well, look, it's been terrific having you explain all this. It's uh, it's brilliant. Now I've got it in my diary, but it's I think on the is it on the Monday that you guys are speaking at uh, SIDGRAPH? Yeah, in the first. Uh, uh, so our SIDGRAPH paper will be uh, presented by uh, Chloe in the first session of SIDGRAPH on Monday morning in the computational camera section. Um, so that's really really good. And the other thing um, I I think we can leak or can mention or can certainly hopefully um, leak is that you're going to be at SIDGRAPH Asia. Uh, yes, I have been invited to uh, to give the uh, keynote at SIGGRAPH Asia uh, coming up in uh, December in Macau. And um, I, I have uh, attended some very interesting keynote addresses there by uh, Ken Perlin and uh, Bill Buxton. And uh, yep. there's some very big shoes to, to fill. And uh, I've had I've been to most of the SIGGRAPH Asias. It's always a, a, a great blast. And uh, uh, I, I certainly encourage anyone who wants to uh, visit that part of the world or comes from that part of the world to, uh, to, to have a look. Um, now, you're, as I said, at Google. Some of the people that were with you at uh, ICT are, are also joining you at Google, which is uh, great. And some of those were, in fact, authors on the paper. Do you want to just give a, a shout out to some of the people that also contributed on this, uh, on this paper? Uh, absolutely. Well, you know, um, Chloe Legendre is our, our, our graduate student, the, the first one. She's still yep. at USC ICT working on her um, uh, PhD. And she actually previously had worked at L'Oreal, uh, studying makeup and representations of it, and it was one of the people behind the uh, well-received and impressive Makeup Genius app that virtually puts makeup uh, on your face. So, I have I have demoed that to my children. <laughs> <laughs> excellent, and uh, it produces some some very uh, fun results. If Frightening you're not results. Who yes. Typically, wears uh, wears makeup, but might open your eyes up to some possibilities. And Th- uh, thanks, you. Um, uh, is our amazing electronics designer for uh, late stage lights and 
we, we probably think of some circuit for him to uh, either uh, build or fix or, or modify uh, every couple of weeks. And he's uh, now at Google with us. Uh, Dai Lu or Adair uh, is actually um, the um, amazing programmer and she has taken over HDR shop development. And pretty much everyone in the lab gets pulled into the SIGGRAPH papers. So she wrote a lot of the code that assembled the color chart panoramas and then figured out ways of uh, uh, applying that to um, or pulling them out of the original images, stabilizing it, and then getting the data to Chloe to drive the light stage. Uh, Jay Bush is our technical artist who did uh, 3D prints, a lot of the uh, figure preparation, uh, a lot of the video preparation uh, for the uh, paper. Uh, Andrew Jones came in and, and pinch hit, hit uh, toward the end on uh, the first version of the compositing that we did for the Greg Downing uh, motion uh, shot using some of the uh, techniques he'd been um, developing in Nuke for doing lots of compositing of the um, interviews with the survivors of the Holocaust that we've been uh, doing for other program, projects. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Samat Patnaik, the um, great professor from the uh, University of Central Florida, doing a sabbatical with us, um, personally wrote a lot of JavaScript code to visualize spectra and how it reflects off of color charts and just got us into the right mindset to be thinking about uh, how we can go about this uh, problem. And uh, we had a lot of... Uh, yeah, this is yet another one of the papers where you know, the final solution seems like, well, why didn't you just do it that way the first way? And we, we try to pretend that that's what we just thought of at the beginning and we just wrote it down. But there were months of like painful, complicated things like this doesn't even look fun at this point. It's just, um, and then it turns out, you know, there's something clever that simplifies it and now it all feels good. And uh, it was great to go on that journey with everyone. Yeah, well, that's uh, terrific. Now, in the past, we've seen that uh, ICT has had stuff both in uh, the um, interactive uh, displays at SIGGRAPH and other places and posters. Is, is there other stuff that, uh, or is this the uh, primary contribution this year at SIGGRAPH 2016? This is, this is our big thing, but there's also going to be a uh, poster that Chloe is doing on optimal LED selection. So uh, if we had it all over to do again, uh, as choosing which LEDs to put in our light stage lights, uh, which LEDs would we choose and why? And she's got a very nice analysis of that. And then I'm also going to be on a uh, panel that uh, some friends from Qualcomm put together on the uh, implications and the future of computer vision technology with a variety of other uh, interesting uh, panelists. So that'll be my chance uh, to be and up Paul, on stage. I, I don't have something. that one on my schedule. When, do you know when that one is? That's uh, uh, I, I will, look at my I will, panels. Let's see here. I, I should... Hopefully, look it up before SIGGRAPH starts <laughs> at some point as well, and uh, hopefully not too early in the morning. I think, okay, it's, well, I think it's in the afternoon, but uh, I'll send you a link. I'll stick it in the show notes as well. But look, it's been really terrific catching up with you. Congratulations on the uh, setup there at uh, Google, which is Google down in uh, in California, not up in um, in San Francisco. So you don't have also, to. Also, uh, which is also in California, but it's a it's a. Well, whole I'm sorry, beg your pardon. I meant yes. That's, <laughs> uh, boy, Google, boy, what was that? Was Google, Freudian Google slip, Venice. wasn't it? But, uh, but but frequent visits up to the uh, Googleplex and uh, Mountain View uh, as well, yes. and uh, uh, it's it's worth pointing out. Google has some absolutely amazing graphics people working at it, in uh, like Mark Lavoie, uh working on uh, on uh, camera technology for them, and uh, you know a big part of the interest in getting involved in Google VR is the amazing people that they have working uh, in their virtual reality team, which include. Um, uh, Steve Seitz, um, who's also also at the University of Washington, uh, and Matt Farr, author of uh, PBRT, and yeah. uh, well, 
recognized uh, for that. Uh, In fact, it's, one of the uh, few books that was ever well. recognized by the Academy, um, certainly in the uh, Cytex that I can remember. Yes, I get, I, I, get, I get to work with these guys and uh, I'm, 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 I'm pretty excited about that. Do you still get that thing at Google where you get to send some of your time doing personal projects? Uh, yes, the 20% time. I think my 20% time is, is the, uh, is the uh, continuing work with the ICT okay. for the time being at this point. Okay. And uh, I don't seem to have that many 20% of my time uh, left over in general. So hopefully I'll manage to uh, keep this, uh, into a, get this into a nice rhythm very shortly. Well, again, we really appreciate it. And, uh, and I'll put the links there to not only this, but as I said earlier, SIDGRAPH uh, Asia, which is coming up uh, in, I think, December. But thanks so much for your time, Paul. We really appreciate it. Thank you. And thanks for everything you do to cover computer graphics and production and research and everything going on in FX Guide. It's an amazing resource for the whole community. Thank you. Well, I think that was great. I, I, I really, um, we've talked to Paul several times and I've been down to ICT a few times with Mike over the years and um, be really anxious to see what, what comes of all this. And uh, as we move forward, you know, the technology keeps evolving and I learned a lot from that about the LED lighting myself and uh, very interesting. So that'll do it for this FX podcast. We um, we do a lot of stuff over at FX, uh, FX Guide, FX PhD. Head on over to the site, prowl around. We've got some great in-depth technical articles up right now about some recent films and how they've approached it. Really long, lengthy articles talking about techniques. And uh, let me just look here real quick and see. There's one that really caught my eye. Mike just finished. Oh, there's a um, another SIGGRAPH paper uh, in the in the in the recent stuff at fxguide.com uh, on facial reconstruction from a, a mono piece of video, not getting into uh, stereo capture, but basically taking a piece of existing video and mapping a new face onto it. This is a paper that was done a few years ago, and now it's been updated to even be stronger. Uh, you want to check that out. It's very detailed about how they're going about doing this. And uh, they started off, I think, doing mouths and decided that that wasn't enough. They needed to do the whole face because of the way the mouth moves and in conjunction with eyes and, and facial tissue and things like that. So check that out. It's titled SIGGRAPH Preview Face Reconstruction from Mono Video. There's articles about new software releases from the Foundry for doing VR, articles about Independence Day, the film. There's a detailed article about the central intelligence. There's a shower scene where um, they had to swap a face, which comes up quite often in visual effects. So check out how they approach that. There's quite a few great articles over at uh, fxguide.com. And of course, check out what we're doing at fxphd.com, whether a training site. And don't forget to check out our FX Insider program, where we have a, a way for you to help us continue doing what we're doing on the site if you like it. Um, we also have some nice beer steins that are available as a premium, it's not like a PBS station here, but check it out. They're really nice. I'm looking forward to getting mine and uh, enjoying some beer with John. He's, he's the beer guy in the crowd. Check those things out and we'll see you on the next FX podcast. This is Jeff Huser for my partners, Mike Seymour and John Montgomery. Thanks for listening. Please let us know if you have any suggestions for stories or future podcasts. You can reach us by clicking the Contact Us link at the top of the homepage. This podcast is copyright FX Guide LLC. Broadcast or redistribution is prohibited without the expressed written consent of FX Guide.